Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sudoil-Hazard. Welcome back, and I hope everyone had a great week. I'm starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the craziness that's been the last year. My season is underway, and the volume slows for me a bit at the day job. Plus... Some exciting news. I have another person in my department now, so that helps and uh, frees up my life a tad. Um, And so it's got me thinking our 50th episode is rapidly approaching. Can you believe it? 50. I want to do a few things to celebrate. First, I want to get to 100 ratings and reviews on Apple Pod and all of the other um, podcatchers. Can you all help me do that? We're in the 40s right now, so pretty please. Pretty, pretty, pretty please. It seriously helps us move along in the algorithms and helps other people discover us who don't know about us. The second thing I would like is for our LTPF Instagram to hit 500 followers. So follow us at LTPF pod. And third, would you all buy any swag if we got some? And what kind of swag should we sell? Any ideas on what said swag should say? Send me your thoughts. I've been looking into this and it's something I really think I want to do. So I am all ears. And then on some other fun news, we are big time. We are officially a media sponsor for the third annual Women's Sports Museum Gala. As I mentioned last week, this museum is in the planning stages. I think they'll have some very exciting announcements in the next few months regarding that. And for now, the gala is their big fundraiser. It's in Sarasota on October 19th. Uh, And this is 2018, if you're listening to this in the future. Um, So if you're in the Tampa or Sarasota or Bradenton area, buy a table or a ticket or become a sponsor of the gala. Um, I'll be there all dressed up. And uh, there are going to be so many fabulous women there. It's a really cool venture. There is no women's sports museum in the country. So this is pretty important. And I think it's going to be really cool. You can check them out at womensportsmuseum.org. And on there, you can donate, buy tickets to the gala, donate items or experiences for their raffle, um, or become a sponsor. And if you're planning on attending, let me know, and I would love to meet y'all. Now, this week's guest is Dr. Caroline Silby, a sports psychologist. And I'm so excited. I've been wanting to have a sports psychologist on for so long. She is a nationally recognized expert on the development of young female athletes, author of Games Girls Play, Understanding and Guiding Young Female Athletes, and an adjunct faculty member at American University. Dr. Silby has worked on an individual basis with two Olympic gold medalists, 10 Olympians, three world champions, 11 national champions, and over 50 national competitors. She's a former elite athlete herself um, in figure skating. And when she was young, um, had a a little performance um, uh, issues, I guess. And it wasn't because she wasn't capable. It was, you know, she was hitting that mental block. So um, we have a really great conversation that ranges from her experience as an elite athlete 
um, deciding to get into the field that at the time was relatively unknown and had almost no women writing a book, systemic changes that are needed to protect athletes, and the difference between what she does and what my therapist does. <laughs> um, and they're two very different things. Um, I loved having this conversation with her, and I think this will be a really cool one. And it's very, it's a different area um, in the sports world than we've talked about before. So I hope you enjoy. And on we go to our interview with <clears throat> and on we go to our interview with Dr. Caroline Silby. Hi Carolyn. Hi Bobby Sue. I should call you Dr. Silby. That's such a jerk thing for me to do. So hi Dr. Silby. No, please don't. <laughs> Caroline's much better. <laughs> I'm like we you know, I get so mad whenever I see on TV like they're like, you know, I'm going to use this as an example. So I don't want the hate mail from anybody listening who has a, an opinion on this. But like when people would say, you know, Mrs. Clinton, I'm like, no, yeah. she's Secretary Clinton, you mm, or yeah. Senator, you know, yeah. like there's a re so I'm sorry, I just did that to you. No, no, no apologies needed. Um, I often start and by often, I mean, every time I don't know why I say often with how did you fall in love with sports? I think it's a it's a great question um, to have people reflect upon. And um, for me, sports has kind of been the consistent theme throughout my life. So um, as a kid, I was um, a figure skater and I was on the national team as a skater um, and I had moved away from home, you know, when I was like 11 um, to train. Where'd you, you know, move with to? Better coaches and better skaters. And we moved to Lake Placid, New York. I was from the Washington, D.C. area. And um, that was kind of like a hotbed at the time in mm -hmm. the 70s um, when people were training and skating. And oh, there was a lot of activity going on up there. They had a dorm and there were ski jumpers and skaters and speed skaters. And um, Everybody was kind of training and um, and it, you know, for me, it, I just had really inconsistent performance levels as an athlete. And I never I never really understood how that could happen, that you could be physically ready and prepared to perform, but have such huge variations and kind of outcomes and in such short periods of time, like within a week or two. Right. Um, and so it kind of turned out that there was this whole field called sports psychology that helped athletes kind of align performance with capability. So I was like, sign me up for that. So that was my introduction into into sports psychology. Um, when you say that you moved away from home, so does that mean just you or was it like your whole family you moved up there? Yeah, no, I actually, um, it was kind of like going to boarding school at a very young age. Yeah, I moved away. There was this dorm um, where a lot of athletes stayed. Like I said, a lot of skaters and ski jumpers, just multiple sports, um, you know, mostly winter sports that were training in Lake Placid. And um yeah, we lived together. We all trained together. Um, and my parents at that time would kind of come back and forth mm -hmm. um, a bit. And um, 
But I really felt like when we talked about it in those early years as a family, for me, it was like trying to, my mom had a career, my dad had a career, you know, I have an older sister. So the thought of everybody moving for my skating just was so completely overwhelming. Um, You know, I already felt pressure to meet expectations. And to me, that was just completely over the top. So they allowed me to, to go with obviously a lot of, um, a lot of supervision, um, uh, and with them kind of coming back and forth, but yeah, it was kind of a, a cool experience, I guess. Um, when did and you, then s- after, no, go ahead. when did Sorry. you start skating? I was seven when I started. So within uh, four years, you were already yeah. at that level. Yeah. Wow. It's, you know, it's a very kind of early, it was, it, it's an early specialization sport, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, now everything is early specialization, but back then, not so much. Um, so sorry about that. <laughs> <That's> um, <okay. laughs> um, so yeah, so, um, so yeah, I had never thought about it that way, that it was kind of a quick, I guess, trajectory, um, in terms of, of building skill and so forth. Um, but there were really good coaches up there and, you know, wanting to kind of, we'd go there in the summer as a family. And I just remember knowing that I improved so much and got so much better and wanting to be exposed to more of that. Um, earlier on. So I was pretty motivated at that point that it changed later on. <laughs> right. But early on, I was really motivated. And when you know you can get that much better in a certain environment, um, you want to, you know, you want to be in that environment and kind of be amongst the best. Sure. In the sport. I don't think I liked anything that much at 11 years old. Like, I'm just trying to think, like, yeah. what did I do or what are the things that I was, like, really into? And I, I literally have zero idea. Um, yeah. And it's which, which is kind of inter- which is kind of an interesting thing, because when I was older and then getting ready to apply to college, I can remember the college is saying, well, you're unidimensional, you know, meaning they were kind of saying all you've done your whole life is figure skate, you know? And so at that time they were like looking for kids that had a wider breadth of knowledge um, and experiences, you know, now it's kind of, I think shifted back the other way. They do want to see kids nowadays, right. That have kind of specialized and are excelling at one thing and have really committed to something. But I always remember thinking that like when I was in high school, boy, I I wish I knew how to play basketball, you know, I wish I knew how to do some other things. Um, So it's always a trade off. I guess. Yeah. And they don't really have collegiate figure skating, do they? Oh, no. Uh -uh. I I didn't think so. (laughs) There was like, I mean, it was, I was headed to become a Smurf in the ice capades if I wasn't off to college. So there wasn't a whole lot going on back then. Smurf Um, in the ice capades. (laughs) That's Um, amazing. And were you, so when, I know like I'm getting caught in this, but I always find um, these types of stories really interesting because it's so it's such a foreign concept to me um when you were there were you you had tutors or you went to school as well you know so i um yes so seventh to ninth grade i was tutored Uh um and 
I think it was like, I think it's still around the Calvert School. It's out of Baltimore, I think. Um, and yeah, I had tutors and it and it like to be it wasn't a weird thing. That's how weird it was, is that it wasn't weird because I was around all these other kids that were yeah. doing the exact same thing. So to us, it was just, oh, OK, that's what you do. You know, you, you skate all day and you get tutored the rest of the time. And um yeah, so we would all do our, you know, we were all very scheduled. We were very disciplined. Um, we got everything done. Um, and then when my, in 1980, after the, the Olympics in 1980 were in Lake Placid. Right. And after that, my coaches decided to move. And so I actually moved to Wisconsin, um, which was another yeah place. There's a small town. Well, actually, people know Janesville now because of Paul Ryan. But at that time, nobody knew, you know, Janesville, Wisconsin. I didn't even know where I remember sitting down with my parents and looking on a map to find where where was I moving? Where was Janesville, Wisconsin? But oh there, there were a bunch of Olympians training there. And um, kind of out of the Chicago area and they had gravitated to, to Janesville and there was a rink. And um, so my coaches were, were moving there and it was kind of a turning point. Do I want to move? Where do I go? And I said, no, I really I, I want to continue to train, but I want to go to school. And I want to experience high school and know what that's like. So the deal was I would move, but I would go to public school in Janesville. And that's exactly what I did. I had a, an, a, they adjusted our schedule so we could go kind of until noon. And then so we'd have all our core classes in the morning. And then I think we got to get out of gym or something. And then we got to go to the rink and skate. Um, in the afternoons. So it what? worked out really nicely. You didn't have to take mandatory gym because you weren't I, moving around enough? What? Right. I know. But they do. They they require they still do that. I mean, it's still really hard to get out of the P.E. requirements. I, sometimes. I, I was um, I was a pretty competitive runner um, all three seasons um, and we could not get out of gym. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. See, so even. Yeah. I, that's I remember that. And I also remember that you could only miss a certain amount of school days. But when you've traveled for international competition, it was like you were already gone a week. Right. So you kind of blew your wad on like one competition. Oh, so my remember gosh. remember that being difficult, too, and, and having to talk to the school system, you know, like, OK, I'm going to be missing more days than right. are allowed. And how, um, how did your classmates react to your odd schedule? I mean, at first I was thinking, how is it going back to school after being away. But since you didn't go back to where you were grown up anyway, what was it like just kind yeah, of having was, that um, two different worlds? It, and that's what it was. It was completely um, two different worlds. And I, I, I don't know what they would say, <laughs> but I thought it was super cool because I loved, you know, I mean, you have all these friends in skating, you've known each other for so long, you know, when you have such a theme throughout your life, you know, these people and you're sharing this experience. And so they're, they're very deep relationships at the same time you're competing. So, um, so there's stress as well. So you're, you have these deep friendships, but you also are sharing a lot of stress together. Right. Whereas having friends at school, it was, it, they didn't, they didn't have to participate in that. You know, they didn't, I mean, they'd ask me, you know, how, how was your day? Because it was in, because they were kind people, but it wasn't like they cared. 
if I won or didn't win or right. if I skated a clean program or didn't skate it, like they didn't care. It didn't, it was not why they wanted to hang, hang out with me or why, you know, we were friends. So for me, that was really, really important. And now that because of the work I do now, we know too, that, that with high level athletes, when you only recognize one dimension of their personality, they're at risk for development of anxiety and depression. Sure. So for me, it was just like this whole world opened up like, oh, my gosh, I can do this and I can have a life, you know, and that's how it felt. Like you'll hear a lot of athletes say, oh, you know, sometimes I just dream about having a normal life. You know, right. and they talk about it as normal, right? <laughs> which means like not all this stress um, on a day, you know, day in, day out. Um, because it is it, it is at a very young age, you're navigating pretty stressful situations. And I think having to develop some advanced coping skills mm-hmm. for stress, but then at the same time, you're not like as good at, at interacting with your peers, you right. know, because it's not something you have to be really good at. You have to be good at interacting with adults. You have to be coachable, you know. Um, but so I think that you learn different skill sets. Um, so for me, that was really good, although certainly scary. I can remember back that first day, you know, and it's the typical like, oh, my gosh, what do you wear to high school? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and is anyone going to talk to me or am I going to be sitting by myself? Oh, um, yeah. You know, but I, you got to go through those things in life. Right. Oh, of course. And so, you know, yeah. So it's like the, you know, first day of work. Like, what do I wear? Yes. And. Am I going to be like walked around? Is somebody going to take me to lunch? Yeah, that's always odd navigating, even as an adult. I mean, it it really is. Um, How now? How long were you? Did you go all through high school in that program? I did. So I um, I went all through high school and then I actually took um, one year off before I went to college and I took a couple college classes um, before I, so that was nine, that was 84. So I stayed in, um, to, um, you know, for that, for that Olympic trial season. Um, and you know, I always say since you've never heard and nobody's ever heard of me before today, you know, I, I obviously did not make the Olympic team. Um, but that kind of set the stage for what would come next, which is my work in sports psychology. So, yeah, so I, I did. And then I, I took off. I went to um, Syracuse University because my parents, I had no idea where to go to college. And it was, let's see, the Olympic trials were over in February. So I think I applied to college at the end of February, beginning of March, by the time I decided I wasn't going to skate anymore. Um, my parents said, oh, I th- we think you should go to Syracuse. They have a good communications program. So I said, OK, <laughs> <laughs> sounds good to me. Will they take me? And I, oh my gosh. I got in. Yeah. And so off I went to Syracuse. So what was, that was that? What was it like making the decision to stop skating? And did that mean you really stopped skating or did it just mean that you were going to competitively, you know, maybe move on from doing competition? Yeah, you know, that decision is, is a very uh, difficult one. So I was actually, um, I think it was a year ago now, the Women's Sports Foundation does this wonderful program 
um, for uh, NCAA Division One athletes and Olympians on transitioning out of sport. Mm-hmm. Because we know it's, you know, transitioning out of anything is difficult, but when you're a young person and you've achieved a lot and then you're transitioning, it's even, it brings its own set of, of kind of issues and concerns. So they do this great program preparing athletes for their transition. And I was speaking at it and I said to the, to the audience, I said, well, you guys know you like, you know, you've quit your sport like about a hundred times in your head before you actually quit. And they all, they laugh, they all were looking at each other and they started to laugh. And it dawned on me that none of them knew that, like none of them knew that other people actually did that. Oh, that's and so funny. It, <laughs> yeah. It was like, they were all looking around like, what? Um, how does she know that? And it's like, yeah, we all do that. Like, so, um, so you do, you, you, there are many times where you kind of go through, should I keep doing this? Should I continue? Am I getting better? You know, kind of life concerns. What I want to move on with my life, you know, and I joke about the Smurf and the ice capades, but really like I wasn't going to become skating was done. You know, I was going to go to college. I wanted to do other things and, and have another career. And so, um, for me, that wasn't, you know, it was always like, yeah, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to move on. It was just like, when? When, So for me, I was so done. Um, I mean, I was like on the way over to the long program. I can remember that at Olympic trials that year, it was like, I was crying on the bus. Like I just wanted to be done. And so, but not everybody around me was ready for me to be done yet. And that's where the pull is. And then when, once the performance is over, then you start to think, oh, well, you know what? That wasn't so bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I can hang in there and keep going. You know, maybe I want to do it another year. Maybe I am getting better. And so. That's um, also, that's also the thing with like people who do marathons. It's like, uh, you know, like two months later, you totally forget how much pain you were in. Right. Like the week and a half afterwards. And you're like, Math, it looks like a fun one. It has a cool metal. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. What? Yeah, you really forget, especially if it goes well. I always say that about my, I have clients that'll call me and they'll say, you know, oh, I'm freaking out this year, you know, or this time at nationals. And I wasn't, didn't feel like this at all last season. And I'm sitting there going, what, what world, like what planet are you living on? Because I can remember you calling me completely freaked out, but because they perform well, they remember it as, you know, no nerves, you know, this wonderful, beautiful experience. Um, So yeah, sometimes we do, um, do remember it differently than, um, than sometimes how it actually played out. Um, While you were, while you were competing, you, um, you said you had some, some struggles, you know, you were physically capable, but for whatever reason, sometimes weren't performing at your best. And you ended up talking to or getting help through a sports psychologist yourself, right? Yes, that's right. Um, so I worked with a sports psychologist, his name, he's no longer living. Um, he's just a wonderful man. Um, Bruce, Dr. Bruce Ogilvie, and he's was kind of known as the father of sports psychology. He really brought the field of psychology into the world of sport um, and kind of trying to look at, you know, our personalities of athletes different, what factors contribute to their success, what factors don't. Um, He was also the first um, uh, sports psych to go in and work with NFL, to work with NFL players. So um, I had this super 
just great experience with him. I flew out to, to see him and he just was like a cool guy. And I thought, well, that's the best job in the world. Like you get to, you know, sit around and talk with kids about sports and help them feel more in control of what they're doing. Um, and navigate kind of the day to day stress in, in a really healthy way. And so I think I went out there to learn how to perform better, which I certainly did learn strategies, but where I really got a ton of value and I hadn't expected it was, um, the day to day, you know, just learning how to enjoy what I was doing and to view it as a process and to open myself to learning and to be better about failing and being okay with that rather than running around like a crazy person trying to avoid it all the time. Um, and through that, I think I just started to like what I was doing more. And as a result, I did stay in the sport, I think longer than I would have, which enabled me to accomplish more of what I could. I mean, I, you know, my physical abilities were my physical ability. I wasn't going to be an Olympic champion. I just wasn't that talented, you know, Mm -hmm. but but I also wasn't performing to the capability that I had. And so to be able to learn how to do that was just really a defining moment for me in, in my life. It was it was very empowering to learn how to do that and to know that you could control that in, in a lot of ways. When you went out to meet with him, was it like a, a one time you met with him and, you know, over a day or over a couple of days or was it? a consistent relationship that you had with him for quite a while. It was a consistent relationship um, through, I think from like 79 to 83, I'd say. Um, And um, so even then we did, we did a lot via distance, but, um, and so I, I went out and I distinctly remember because he, I had the first day was all physiological testing to make sure that, um, everything was in working order. Right. <laughs> so I did all the physiological, you know, the stress test and the body fat and, you know, all of that. And that was kind of fun and cool. Um, and then the next day was all kind of, you know, a lot of pen and paper tests. And then from that, he was able to kind of tell me, okay, you know, here are some of the, the strengths that are really going to help you. Here are some of the things about you that are potentially going to get in your way. Um, and I'm here, you know, basically he taught me a lot about relaxation and imagery. Um, uh, people didn't really do mindfulness training then, you know, boy, if I had known that you could do 12 minutes of mindfulness for two weeks, (laughs) get a therapeutic benefit, that would have been really helpful. Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Back then we do those long relaxation and imagery exercises. Oh, the Uh, visualization. Yes. Yes. Very long. The tensing, you know, progress, they did progressive muscle relaxation. Um, so we would, he would take me through that. Although, you know, I enjoyed it. Although, you know, I, I, I was not a visual person and I, it was a very strange thing. My coaches would always say, go, go picture your, go sit over in the corner, you know, picture yourself doing your program. And I'd see this like headless skater. I couldn't see my head. I could see my body. And then I'd be flopping around and like falling. And I thought this just can't be, this can't be what they're talking about. No, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this. And it's also like a, 
a look into your like greater psyche, right? Like right. <laughs> that's clear. That clearly is meaningful, right? But it's a different therapist right. a that needs to help you. Thing. That's right. Yeah. A whole different ballgame. <laughs> Can we talk about my book problem? I'm not kidding when I say that I have like four books I'm working through at any one time and I keep buying more. Seriously, I just bought three new books last week and pre-ordered another one. It's out of control. I know I don't have the time to get through all of them in the near future and that's where Blinkist comes in. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling non-fiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements so you can read or listen to them on your phone in under 15 minutes. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. The Blinkist library is massive. From timeless classics like The Power of Habit to current Amazon bestsellers like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I use Blinkist when I'm driving to and from work. It's the perfect amount of time to get through books like Get Your Shit Together. And who knows, maybe I'll finally get my shit together. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for all of you. Go to Blinkist.com slash playing to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash playing to start your free seven-day trial. You can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash playing. You were saying that you applied to Syracuse. They had the comms program. Did it, it had you thought like maybe I want to do what what Dr. Ogilvie was doing? Yeah, I totally wanted to do sports psychology. In fact, when my parents said sport, oh, I don't know. Like, how do you you know where's the job in the newspaper for that? You know, we used to right. get used to open the Washington Post and there were jobs, right? You know, and it was kind of like, well, how are you going to do that? And I thought, yeah, how am I going to do that? Maybe. Maybe I maybe I should stick with this communications thing, you know, and then I'll just figure it out. My junior year, I can distinctly. So I did like in the summers, I did a couple different in, internships communicating like with the, it was home team sport I and mean, cable TV was just coming into being, you know, and mm-hmm. so I did. It, and so I think it was my it must have been my sophomore year in college. You, you sit around and everyone says, oh, you know, what internship did you have this summer? You know, oh, I worked at ESPN and, you know, oh, I did this, I did that. And um, I remember th- then then after they went around and everybody, then they said, well, so what exactly is it that each of you want to do as a career? And I remember saying, well, I'd like to be a sports psychologist. And so the guy, the professor came up to me afterwards and said, have you thought about transferring into the psych department? And I said, yeah. And so I think that year, it was either my sophomore or junior year, I I transferred out of Newhouse into arts and science and um, and started on the, the psych path. So, um, so yeah, it just took me a while to kind of individuate, you know, and to kind of sure. say, okay, this is, this is really the path I want to take. And then, um, and then, you know, surprise, my parents were extremely supportive and super excited and um, about me doing that. You know, there weren't that many sports psychologists back then, and there certainly weren't a lot of women right. that were going into the field. So at that time, it was, oh, wow, okay, 
um, you know, what is that? It's still like that, you know, in some ways people, you know, when you say, what do you do? And some people, Oh, well, what I love when people ask that, Oh, well, what is it? Because it, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to know what, you know, what does that cover and what does that entail? Although it's so much easier to get, get jobs, you know, today, um, because so many sport teams and youth sport programs and businesses and so oh, many yeah. people are using principles of, of sports psych. So, and your so your undergrad, when you went through the psych program, it's just like anybody going through a psychology program, right? It's a lot of right. science and yes. theory and yep. um, things that I never would want to take in my life, like <laughs> biology. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. No, it was okay. I didn't have to take that. I mean, the sciences weren't my strength, but I muddled through. And then I, <laughs> my dad was a physician. And so he said, well, do you, I, I think because I don't know why that was if I took, oh, I think I went to summer school a couple, uh, one summer. And so I was like ahead in my credits. And so he said, do, do you want to go to medical school? And I said, oh, I don't I don't really, I don't know. Like, I don't think I can get through all of that. And he said, well, why don't, why don't you try? Why don't you take some? I think I had to take organic chemistry or something. And that was that. It was <laughs> like, there was no way. That was the bane. So I think I did that. in. yeah, I think I did that over the summer. And I said, yeah, no, this isn't going to work for me. A very close uh, friend of mine had to wanted to go. I think she wanted to be at first she wanted to be a doctor. And so she had to take like, you know, org chem and then org chem two or something. Is, is there a second one or something? And, I, yeah. And I oh. just remember her like melting down. <laughs> okay. Maybe yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, yeah. No, I don't think that's going to work for me. I'll go the regular PhD route. And, um, and you trans, so then you went down to UVA for your master's and doctorate, which is what yep. combines into the PhD. Yep. I actually don't know how that works. Um, it's it's so it's funny how different the processes are for the various doctorates, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, well, and I don't even know now. Like the the whole educational model has changed so much too. Like I I know I write recommendations. Like you couldn't get into a PhD program back then without having a master's. But now today, the kids apply right into PhD programs. So things have changed yeah. um, in academia for sure. Um, but it was a great program. You know, Bob Rotella was down there. It was UVA had the at that time the kind of the most applied sports psych program in mm-hmm. the country. And I knew I didn't want to teach. Although it's funny because I ended up teaching and really right. loving it. But I was <laughs> so opposed. I was not going to teach. Um, and I was going to go into private practice and that was what I was going to do. Um, and so I knew I wanted a very kind of applied program. And I also did the, um, I also did their whole master's program in counseling, um, at UVA. I did, so I did a bunch of internships. I did an internship, the counseling internship at the women's center. And I did one at, um, Oh, what was that? The Career Development Center. And so that was where I learned because they film you, you know, you yeah. do, you meet with clients and then they, you have a advisor and they, you know, they film you and then they ask you, what were you feeling when the client said such and such? <laughs> um, 
what did you do? You know, that clay, yeah. you know, the, it, it's very typical when sometimes in, in, with cat, with certain clients, they'll either tell you everything in like the first 30 seconds about their entire life, or they won't tell, sometimes they won't tell you anything until the last five minutes. And I, I had both of those kind of clients in these internships. Um, and so that was really a great experience because I can remember coming out of the sports psych program. Well, not coming out, but when I was in my master's program, some of the coaches that I had uh, skated, some of the people that I had skated with were now coaches. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, I remember this one coach said, I've got this little girl. She won't stop crying. She cries all the time. Can you come and try to help her stop crying? So I remember I went to Ritali because I didn't have a, degree, a master's yet. And I said, can I do this? And he said, yeah, you can do it with my supervision, but you can't charge them anything. And I said, oh, OK. So I go up. She's at, up at the University of Delaware. So I drive from UVA, you know, to, to Delaware to try to have the girl stop crying. And it, it dawns on me <laughs> when I sit down that I have absolutely no, like, I know all this stuff from a textbook that I've been taught. Right. But I have no idea. What, what do you do? Right. right. How do you like, how do you actually interact? Do this? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know, and what, where do you start and what do you say? And so that's where I could draw on my counseling experiences. Um, so that was actually kind of how my, um, yeah, my kind of side business started because um, she actually did stop crying. <laughs> um, and so then, of course, it was, oh, who's that and why is she here and who is she working with? And so then um, once I got my master's, then I could start taking on some other um, some other clients. So I, I, I always, even in grad school, kind of had a little bit of a start, um, you know, because of my connection to figure skating, knowing the sport. Right. Um, and people being very open to learning stress management strategies at that time. No, that's um, fantastic. And, and it's such a good um, lesson for people who are listening, you know, who are thinking, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know where I'm going to go, but they have a really deep, rich knowledge and network within Mm -hmm. a particular sport, right? Um, Maybe it's because they were an elite athlete. Maybe it's for whatever reason and, and thinking of ways to draw upon the knowledge they already have, even if it's just from a relational sense, right? Like I can empathize with you because I've been through it as opposed to somebody who, I don't know, was a bookworm and, and never played a sport and didn't understand, right? Um, completely, completely that shared experience piece. And and I agree with you kind of, you know, I jumped in where one, I was comfortable um, because the work, you know, the sports psych work to me was new, right? right? So I, to go into an environment where that you know and that you understand to then apply those new pieces of information and knowledge that you gained, I think kind of was an anchor Mm -hmm. that really allowed me through that to pass through that transition. Um, You know, and so I think that was, that was really helpful. I did use, I don't know if you did this with, with your career, but I also, there were, um, I had served on some committees and in U.S. figure skating. And I was on what was called the Athletes Advisory Committee, which is every national governing body has to have like 
20% athlete representation on their board of directors. Right. And if you're an international competitor, you can run to do that. And so I did that um, to get some service experience and to understand what boards are like and how do those work. And, and so then I got elected to the Olympic Committee AAC, the Athletes Advisory Committee. And so when you talk about kind of depth of network, I don't, I didn't realize that's what I was doing, right? but that's what I was doing. You oh, know, sure. I just thought I was building experiences and kind of opening myself. And it was super fun because it was all young people and we had a blast. Um, and you learned a lot like that was when, um, uh, in the nineties, we're kind of out of competition, uh, drug testing was just starting. We were having all of those discussions mm-hmm. um, back then. So really interesting kind of topics, you know, that you're learning about and that you're able to participate in decision making um, and have a voice in. So all of that was was really, really fun. And that is also when I learned that if you're going to work in Olympic or pro sports, you absolutely must know the sponsors. Yes. <laughs> because I showed up to my first Olympic committee meeting. And oh, God. The, yeah. It, the, the president of the USOC stands up to greet, you know, the group. And he before he says a word, he points right at me and he said, you're clearly new. Uh, and I just, I, I looked around, like, I didn't think he was pointing at me, like what, you know? And, um, it turns out that, you know, he said, well, Coke is our sponsor. I had a big old Pepsi, yeah. pop, you know, with, yeah. it was just filled with water to be honest, but it was, you know, a big old like Pepsi thing, you know, from Seven Eleven or whatever. And he was like, do not ever make that mistake again, you know? And it's like, okay, I will promise. Yeah. So so know the sponsor, right? When you show up. You know oh that. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's funny. I, um, I, it's one of the things that I joke with interns about sometimes they'll come in and they're wearing like, I don't know, like something that's got like Reebok all over it. <laughs> and I'll look at them and be like, no, we're Nike. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something like that. And I, I it's, it's me just messing with them really. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know if you want to be wearing that around here. Exactly. But it's something to think about. And we have that, you know, same Coke Pepsi thing that goes on all the time. And every once in a while, there's an event at the stadium where maybe the green room has the other products because that's who's sponsoring the concert tour or something. And you have to like make sure that, that all gets locked up so nobody accidentally walks outside of that room on game day with, right. you know, with a Mountain product. Dew where, <laughs> you know, and, and listen, maybe that's your preference. And so you chug it in that room and then go out. But it's, you know, like those yeah. are the things that like people forget to think about. Um, Me too. I mean, I had, I would, it would never have even I mean, I never made the mistake again, at least that I know of that. I don't think anyone has ever said I have. But um, but, you know, and again, then I I actually after that, you know, I was so embarrassed, but I reached out because I wanted to to apologize. And and he took and so I said, could I have a meeting with you? And he actually took the meeting. And that's um, fantastic. Yeah. And so, again, just kind of to your point earlier, it's like finding And again, it wasn't me saying, I'm going to network, you know, it wasn't, it was just kind of happening through, I think, some choices and, and 
probably taking a little bit of risk to right to maybe run for some of those offices or so forth or try to get into those positions. But I, I, I don't even think I knew how valuable those experiences those experiences were um, well, it at sounds, the time. It sounds like you were just very curious as well. And yeah, you, yeah. you allowed yourself to follow that yeah. curiosity. Yeah. But I also think it's what you were saying earlier. There was a comfort, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? That's, that was my world and I knew it. And, and so I was confident um, in that. So I felt like even though, um, even though I hadn't served, I served long enough on figure skating's board. Yes, I could do that next step. Now, let me see what, it, like to your point, yeah, the curiosity. Let me see what the Olympic stuff is all about. Um, and yeah, just really great memories and, and great experiences to be exposed to. I will say that it was also the biggest mistake in my life after, or in my career after that meeting, because they, at that time they were trying to get more women involved in higher um, level positions within mm-hmm. the USOC. And they were starting, I don't know that they had started it yet, but they were getting ready to start like a management program where you could come through and work with within every department of the USOC. Sure. And so they said, would you, you know, would you want to do that? Um, And I said, no. And that's where it was like, what? I look back going, "Why, why would I not have done that? And, you know, the reason is because I was so, you know, as an elite athlete, you're so focused on getting from point A to B. It's Mm -hmm. like, do not disturb me. Right. <laughs> I'm on this path. And it was like, I was on my path for sports psychology, you know, and that just would have been off the path. Um, and so I've always kept that in mind because I think that that would have been just really an enhancement to just the management side of things and really understanding that piece of the puzzle and having had those kinds of experiences and being on the business side of sport, I think could have really been a terrific experience. Um, and so I always say that was kind of the, the biggest mistake that I made and, and not being able to kind of just go off path right. for a little bit, right? knowing that you can always come back on, but that it's going to probably allow you to grow, um, in ways that you wouldn't have realized. So that comes up so much, not just with like, with that very, you know, clear type of example, but there, if say we're talking law, right. And we're talking about someone like me and my types of roles, you know, there's like a a hierarchy of titles, right. Mm -hmm. And you go from one to the next to the next, like that's kind of how it works. And if you switch companies, you're still kind of going up in that hierarchy. And it's so funny how some people are unable to look outside of the title at like what the overall experience would be and what you can gain from it. Even if the title isn't that next quote unquote logical step, So whether it's like you're at the same title or maybe you're at a lesser title, but it's a bigger Mm -hmm. organization and stuff like that. And it's fascinating to me. And I've bopped all over the place. I went from general counsel to associate corporate counsel and, you know, now assistant general counsel where I am now and, you know, kind of ping ponging. And to me, it's like, well, it it made sense to do the step down because I was going to be working with more people and doing different Mm -hmm. things. And, um, 
and a lot of people have it's almost a pride thing and yeah. and an inability to adapt i think right and it's also very um re- much very related to sport you know it's it's much more of a pro- what you're talking about i think is much more of a process focus right as opposed mm-hmm. to just an outcome so the title is the outcome as opposed to looking at well what kind of experience am i going to get right with right with having that title and not getting so caught up on the title but kind of what you're what you're learning and athletes have to do that all the time right they have to balance that because um you know a lot of the time you're you're not gonna quite get the outcome that you want you've got to really stay really process focused sure meal prepping is one of the easiest ways to keep an eye on your budget and ensure that you're eating good food doing it on your own can be a bit of a pain though and prep dish is here to fix that PrepDish is a meal planning service that can make this so much easier. You get a weekly email with a grocery list and prep ahead instructions so all of your meals are ready for the week. Stress-free, healthy meals. Eat gluten-free, dairy-free, and paleo meals that are real food. If you are super busy, like I am, this is a no-brainer. You save time by being more efficient in the kitchen and having that handy grocery list ready for you. This week, they have this delicious looking stuffed chicken with um, artichoke hearts and goat cheese and mushrooms, and I can't even handle it. The owner of Prep Dish, Allison, is giving all of you a free two-week trial at PrepDish.com slash LTPF. That's two weeks of great meal planning with grocery list and prep ahead instructions for free by visiting PrepDish.com slash LTPF. PrepDish.com slash LTPF. I know you said that it, the educational system has changed a bit, but what is, how long is that generally and what's entailed? So the PhD program was six years. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, um, like I said, I really um, was wanting to do applied work. And in fact, I almost went to, I, I was accepted and I already had my place booked and everything for a PsyD program in Chicago. Um, and PsyD is where you don't have to do research. You just do a lot of, it's still a six year program, but it's a a lot of applied work. It's for people who are going to want to go into private practice. Um, but I thought, well, if I'm going to do six years, I don't know, the PsyD program then, people weren't sure of that, like, that degree, you know, maybe I should get the PhD. But I was really scared of the research piece of it, which I shouldn't have been because it all ended up being fine. But there was a, a, a whole core, I don't remember all the exact classes, but there was this whole core of counseling classes that you had to take. Um, there was a lot of sports psych, and then there was a ton of research. Um, and there was some like physiology, exercise, phys, athletic training. There was a whole kind of physiology component as well. Um, I got a lot of those out of the way early on though, I think. Um, and, um, so then there's just a ton of statistics. There's a ton of, you know, I don't remember all the you know, individual design, case study design. Oh my like God. All the, like, you know, research after research after <laughs> yeah. research, you know, stat one, stat two, stat three. Um, so, um, 
yeah, not my forte, you know, but I loved what I was doing. And I loved the fact that I could, even with all the research design that you're doing in a PhD program, I was still, I was applying it to, to things that I knew and that I loved and that were so interesting to me, Mm -hmm. um, and asking questions that, that were really, um, interesting. Do you, do you think having that little side hustle was helpful because you were still able to get that hands on, yeah, you know, practical experience that would keep you out of like, I don't know, yeah. the research doldrums? Yeah, the research and the teaching, because that was the right. other place that you could, you know, make my like, I remember one semester I taught uh, my my roommate had done gym. She was a cheerleader and she had done gymnastics. So somehow they hooked us into teaching gymnastics. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the first thing. So I had to do like, you know, the stretching part, you know, like from what I remember from skating, it was like, Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Um, you know, and she taught beam. I remember I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. What are we doing? So yeah. So it kept me out of that realm. Um, and I could, and it was cool because I was, you know, building, this practice, like it was showing me that I can do this. I can make it doing this. Um, but a lot of people did tell me, I don't know how you're going to do this. Like you need at that point in time, people in sports psychology worked at universities. So they, they would get a teaching job or, um, uh, a job in the athletic department. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't, there were some universities that were hiring sports psych people, but the, the people that were hired were hired. Like those jobs weren't opening up. Right. They hadn't been there that long yet. Um, so th- there weren't, there wasn't this huge amount of university positions. And again, I, I really felt like I could go into private practice. But actually, my first job out of graduate school, I went and worked at a ballet school because I thought I wanted to do eating disorder work. Mm. And so I thought, what better place than to go to work at a ballet school and get. And so I was supervised um, while I worked there and they wanted a performance person. And that's what I did. It was a boarding school. And these dancers all live there, kind of what I had done my life. Right. Right. Um, and they trained and they went all over and they did the nutcracker and, um, and it was a great experience. Um, but I knew that from that I learned, I, I just was, I didn't want to do eating disorders. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and so that it was good from that perspective, but because these kids were, what ended up happening was they were in rehearsals all day. So I had like a lot of free time because they couldn't meet with me until they were finished with rehearsals. Right. And so, um, I had asked the school, would you mind? Can I, can, if clients want to come in, can they come? And they were okay with that. I, I think legally today, liability wise, you probably couldn't do it, but back then they were okay <laughs> with it. And yeah. they said, sure. And I think they were wanting people to see the school, you know, anyway, like sure. that gave exposure to the school. So, um, so yeah, so I, so I was even able to build my, and that's when I said, okay, I'm ready. I can step off and jump into this. Um, and then it wasn't long after that, that I got the book deal, I think. Um, that's incredible. Did you, so, yeah. did you focus a lot of your research on disordered eating? I didn't, I did parenting, 
which was interesting. Um, oh. And par- I did parenting style. I forget what my dissertation was called, but it was like parenting style and its impact on confidence or something like that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And because um, ha- at that time, there wasn't a lot of parenting research. No, I helped my um, a, a good friend of mine who was a few years ahead of me in the program. She did her dissertation on eating disorders. And I actually helped her. She she did one of these dissertations where this was also a good lesson where she developed her own um, her own survey or own. It's not the survey. What is it? Called? I'm blanking on the, the word. But um, she developed her own measurement tool um, for attitudes. I think it was like coaches attitudes about eating disorders. It was like knowledge and attitudes about eating knowledge, attitudes and beliefs about eating disorders. Okay. <laughs> it's like doing two dissertations because you have to first do this right. You've got yeah. to make sure that it's reliable and a valid measure. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually measuring what you're saying. And then you actually have to go out and do the other study. Right. So it was like, That's Oh, so I'm not funny. doing that. Right. So I learned that. Don't do that. Um, and, um, yeah, so I did a parenting style and I used, um, I used questionnaires that were already, uh, va- you know, valid and reliable. Yeah. Um, I remember, measures. I remember writing for a, this is such an odd random thing. Um, when I was in high school for, I don't know why, but I, I became fascinated in a way about eating disorders and not not because I myself had disordered eating. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I like saw a lifetime movie or whatever it was, but I became fascinated with it and I would often use it as like the topic of papers. Yeah. Um, and again, like I was that skinny little kid who you brought to old country buffet and I would just eat all day. And then, you know, and like, yeah, though you had to have seen it a lot at running as a runner. I don't Do you remember friends or anybody I don't think struggling? I was no not that I'm aware of but I also am not sure that I would have been aware of it yeah um because I was very naive like I was really kind of naive and sheltered I think in in some of those respects and um I remember some girls being like oh I'm too heavy but for the most part as far as I knew. Um, but there were, you know, some people, I think later on that we would talk about, I think it was because people always looked at me and were like, you're, you're so anorexic. And I'm like, no, I'm just really thin. Mm -hmm. And my metabolism is crazy because I'm running 40 miles a week. Yeah. And I haven't actually like gone through puberty yet because it's stalled, yeah. you know, like, yeah, well, and we know so much more now right. with athletes and the triad and all of that. So we just are more knowledgeable yeah. now. Um, yeah. But all of yeah. that is like such great experience for you, even if you're not going to be, you know, focusing on disordered eating, a lot of yeah. your practice has been with female athletes and that is a byproduct. Yeah, um, no, it was it terrific experience. And it also taught me about working, um, with teams of people because, um, there was a hospital close by that I referred a lot of the kids that Mm -hmm. needed to be seen, um, and that were potentially going to need inpatient, possibly inpatient or outpatient treatment. But 
this idea, I loved that idea about the doc and the um, nutritionist and, um, and the psychologist and everybody working together to really um, move the, 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 the dancer athlete kind of through um, this stage in her life and kind of help her build like a healthy relationship with food. So I didn't want to do the work, but I, right. but I love that, you know, team approach. And I use that team approach so much, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, in, especially in work with Olympic sports, um, that team approach, and I'm sure you see it, you know, yeah. in the pro, at the pro level, you know, that it's just, it can be really highly impactful, um, to be able to kind of, you know, put multiple heads together and, you know, help the athlete kind of, you know, um, holistically as opposed to just, you know, okay, that person, they're getting nutrition advice over there, but the nutrition advice isn't talking to, you know, the sports psych at all. And so when you can kind of put those together and, you know, the team doc and, you know, the strength trainer and everybody's kind of on the same page, um, boy, performance can, can really be impacted in a, in a profound way. So that was my first kind of introduction to, to that team approach was from the, from that eating disorder model. I, yeah, I think that's such a, it's such a unique thing to be able to witness um, when Mm -hmm. there are all these pieces, but I think it also is something that we've seen become more common in just your everyday people, right? This, Yes. Is it integrative medicine? Is that yes. what it's called? Uh-huh. Yes. No, uh, that's right. I'm oddly aware of things. Um, so, you know, yeah. and, and having them be able to work, it's why you see these large medical groups that have mm-hmm. um, all different types of specialties within it, that they all talk to each other. And, you know, they're all on the same EMR platform and things along the that's electronic medical records to the yeah people listening because I just realized that not everybody knows what that means. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to watch. I I think I became aware of that type of approach when my mom went, um, I think the first major mania that she had um, Mm. because there were so many different, you know, there, she had a, I, I never understood she had a counselor and then she had a psychiatrist and then she had, you know, an inpatient person and then her regular, and like, it took a while for me to understand what was going on there. I was young, I was 14 and we didn't have the, we didn't have the Google webs. Um, but you know, it's always been something that I've like thought about as like, that's got to be so helpful because it's so much more helpful to have all that different brain power. And especially if people are focusing on their, their little niche, you know, everybody can kind of like see things from a different perspective. Yeah, Um, no, for sure. And then, you know, we were talking, I was just doing, um, I was at the, uh, 2018 Olympics. And so we, we were just doing kind of a debrief and, um, we were doing kind of, there were a bunch of, it was the bunch of people, the nutrition physicians, uh, all of us were kind of together, putting our heads together, kind of saying, okay, what, what worked, what, what didn't work. And, you know, part of what, I was talking about in my presentation, which was about stress, the stressors, you know, what right. kind of stressors impact and where are we and how, you know, are we, what, where are we doing a good job helping athletes and where do we need to go, you know, in the future? And, um, it was interesting because I talked a lot about autonomy, 
you know, that at the same time where now there's all of these people and all of this support for athletes, uh, we don't necessarily, especially in the, a lot of the Olympic sports, it's not really set up to make athletes autonomous. It is right. set up, right, to make them very um, coachable and they need to please, they need to listen, they need to execute. But like in life, you know, right, you need to know how to plan and you need to know how to self-advocate. Um, you know, you need to know how to fit other people's opinions within your own. And and so it was interesting kind of this concept that with, with all of these um, available resources now. We all we still need to promote this idea, right? That people self advocate and mm-hmm. make sure that they kind of own it, um, as opposed to kind of it, it. It can be everybody starting wanting to help so much that then everybody's stepping in and trying to do too much. Sure. So there is that other side of just kind of trying. Yes, we all have to be this team and right hand needs to talk to left hand, you know, and all of that. But um, but at the same time, athletes still have to be in charge. Um, Well, well, and that's so funny that you say that. I mean, not funny, but one of these days I'll have the right words. Um, You know, when so I had Morgan McCall, who was a dancer um, on in a few months ago. And she's also one of Larry Nassar's survivors. Ah. And and one of the things that I think we've seen throughout the fallout of that situation has been um, that a lot of times the young women didn't know how to advocate for themselves or when they mm-hmm. did, people weren't listening. And and also to have they're they're taught to or conditioned really to um, be extremely trusting Mm. um, and and doubt themselves when something Mm -hmm. happens. And so finding ways that there can still be that, you know, highly coachable um, personality who also trusts their own gut instincts and yes. and we provide platforms or um, ways for for them to advocate for themselves and be listened to so, yeah. um, is so important. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, one of the things that I was pointing out, too, is that, that there's been such a shift um, in in all sports um, across the board that you know, this idea of um, play for purely for excellence and to get really great. It, mm-hmm. There has been a shift. And it's it's not that the one constant is that athletes want to perform. They want to play great. They want to play to their capability. Right. They want to win. Right. That's a that's a constant. But the reasons for that have shifted. Um, and so there's medals and there's money. You know, there's right. championships and there's money. And so the drivers have have changed and it's a reality um, in in sport. And I and I think when you look at look at the, the money and the medals and all of that, there's also a lot of people involved whose careers are also resting right on the win loss record. Right. You know, or the athlete, you know, succeeding or failing. And so to 
be enmeshment in relationships is almost inevitable, you know, kind of what you're talking about, about being able to kind of speak up and be independent and, you know, not um, and and to be heard and to, to know how to communicate so that you can be heard and all of those things it, it, they're, they're not really taught in sport. Right. Um, and it can be hard. Um, and I think a lot of times athletes feel it's not lost on them, you know, that, that their performance also impacts, you know, whether the, you know, I don't want to use a specific person, but whatever that management person has a job or not. Right. Right. You know, and so it's not lost on them. And so there is this, you know, the, the, the coaches and the management do a lot to make the athletes successful. The athletes do a lot to make them successful. The parents are in, you know, so everybody's kind of enmeshed. It's really hard to, to kind of differentiate. And so one of the things that I was saying is that, that attacking the system, looking at this more systematically, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just helping teach skills to an athlete, you got to look at the whole system. Oh my gosh. Right. Within Mm -hmm. which that they're operating. And so I think if we move more, I think that's kind of the next phase. If we start moving in that direction, we've done so much with sports psych and being able to to make it like we were talking about early on in the show, like we've gotten to that point of making it prevalent, right? It's out there. People know what it is. Like right. you go into, you know, a, a soccer team of 13 year olds and they've heard of it. Oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, sure. Metal training. Yeah. Sports. Like. So it's great from that perspective, but that's to me, that's kind of that next step, especially at, at the higher levels. And um, yeah. And you wonder with the Nasser situation, if it would have made any, any difference if we, would have been able to promote those concepts, you know, what we're talking about more. Sure. um, And and I do, I do think that there are some, when you look from a systemic point of view, there are, there are organizations that there's so much money coming into those organizations Mm -hmm. that you begin to question whether or not they have the best, you know, whether it's about the athlete or it's about the money and, and I mean that I could talk about that for 500 hours. Yeah. Um, right. Athlete centered yeah. organizations. Yeah. Right. When, when someone, um, when you tell somebody what you do and they're like, okay, sports psych. So you're basically a shrink for, <laughs> for athletes. Right. And yeah. you and I have talked about this quickly. Like there's a big difference between yes. what you do and what my therapist does for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's not right. I'm not doing any kind of long-term therapy. Um, and I, I made that choice that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So, yeah. So I, you know, to me, my job is all about helping people use their sport experiences first and foremost to become healthy, empowered, successful people. Um, and, and we want their sport, you know, who also have sport outcomes that match their capabilities. So to me, those are kind of the, the, my two goals and work working with athletes. Um, I tend to put the healthy, empowered, successful, you know, person first, um, that have outcomes, um, that match, uh, their, their, physical capabilities, um, as an important piece, but it's secondary. They've got to be, you know, sound people and you, and knowing how to use those sport experiences and all the stress that comes with it 
in an empowering way. So yeah, the long-term therapy is, is not what I do. Um, and nor is kind of the diagnostic piece, but I certainly can pick up on those things and kind of know, I always say, I know what I'm really good at. And I know a whole lot of people that are really good at the other piece of it. Right. And, um, and I connect with those people and make sure that I have the, the right resources in place. Um, for athletes. And, you know, today the anxiety and depression rates are very high. We know that. And athletes are even more vulnerable to that, um, for a variety of reasons. And, um, so yeah, you, you have to have your resource people lined up and people that you think are going to be a good match for, for that athlete. What, um, what a lot of people will, will think about when it comes to the sports psych is you can think about like you see it in baseball a lot or you see it with a kicker in football um and of course these are male dominated but you know go with me here but you know these are these are two of the areas where you see it where you can tell there's a mental block there is just something there that all of a sudden he can't get a hit you know or all of a sudden you know, you're great throughout your entire college career in kicking. And then all of a sudden you can't, you can't mm-hmm. kick, you know, a point after touchdown. Yeah. Um, the yips in golf, it's called. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, um, and, and so, you know, the performance aspect is really just helping them, you know, get through things like that. Correct. Yes. I mean, it's taking anything, any possible uh, scenario, stressor that might impact performance um, and and trying to work through that. So fundamentally, you know, athletes are coming to meet with me because performance is not meeting expectation, at least consistently. And so the first question I'm going to ask them is tell me about a time that you played great. Um, and they will describe in great detail mm-hmm. moments in time when it just all worked, you know, right. and, um, and happily do that. And the next question I ask them is, okay, so now I want you to identify one action that you took that helped contribute to that positive result. And then there's a pause and nine times out of 10, they say, I have no idea. And therein lies the issue, right? right? So if you haven't reflected upon kind of the actions that you take to impact your positive results, it's definitely hard for us to ask you to perform consistently well over time. So part of this is highlighting, okay, what do you do when it works? Because it becomes pretty evident in in certain situations, and they're they're different for everybody, you know, but like for some people, uh, like, let's say I had a tennis player on the tour who who was a great tennis player if she could get through like the first round. Like <laughs> the hardest thing was for her to beat the low seated people. Yeah. Um, she had no problem going up against the great people because then there's the upside. Right. Right. But that whole idea of like playing to, you know, to, not to lose. 
um, was like a huge hurdle, right? So everybody, so, but you could just see exactly what she, she did the exact opposite in those difficult moments that she did when she played great tennis. And so a lot of it is being able to identify, make those connections for people Mm -hmm. and then use strategies and put strategies in place that allow them to move through those moments more efficiently and fluidly so that they can, you know, perform as they've been trained. What about motivation? Well, what about it? Like, is it, does it impact performance? Is it a thing? Do they yeah, do I mean, athletes I, have know, more motivation than other people? Do they struggle with it? it is there a magic formula? They struggle with it just like everybody, you know. But I here's what a lot of the sports that when when people are achieving at a high level athletically, they tend to be highly motivated. So they tend to be more kind of on the perfectionistic side because nobody in their right mind, you know, would throw a football like, you know, 500 times unless they were slightly obsessive about getting really good at it. Right. So like just the repetitive nature of sport, um, you know, breeds a certain type of individual, um, who is going to be pretty tenacious and able to kind of, um, just hang in there and do something over and over and over again until, uh, they meet an expectation. The problem for a lot of high level athletes is that when they don't meet the expectations, they then turn on themselves. Right. So that's where the motivation can actually get in their way. Right. So when you turn on yourself, when you don't meet your expectation, it's kind of like you can think of it as you're not only the attacker, but you're the attacked. Yeah. Right. So you're both. Right. Which creates you know, a surge in cortisol, you know, your stress goes through the roof and now you've just made your task, you know, 50 times harder um, to navigate. So part of it is helping athletes kind of balance, you know, when they need, you see a lot of people use that kind of negative form of motivation. Oh my gosh, this is such a big deal. You know, if I don't, you know, if I don't have a great game today, you know, then I'm going to lose playing time. And if I lose playing, you know, then I'm not going to have as much money. It's like becomes this catastrophic thing. And meantime, nothing bad has happened yet. right? Right. But um, but they do that with the with the intention of of that. Well, I don't want to be average, so I'm just going to keep reminding myself how important this is to be on and to do a good job. Right. So that I don't become average. And so you have to point out to them that 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 strategy would actually work pretty well for an unmotivated person. Right. <laughs> right. Like if you told an unmotivated person, no, like this is really important, you better get it done. It would actually improve their motivation. So I think you have to help people understand kind of what their own personality is all about, what, what's driving the behavior and is it working? Um, you know, so you know, sometimes I'll laugh, like, you know, say, what are you going to go do before you, you know, let's say it's a skater before you skate. Oh, I'm going to go sit in my hotel room and worry. Okay. <laughs> how's that going to work? Sounds about right. You know, that sounds good. <laughs> like, how's that going to, yeah, not good. Okay. Let's not do that. You know, <laughs> let's find some other things to do. So a lot of it is also about putting people in control and allowing them to learn how to be extremely solution focused. Um, and, and not, you know, there's a time and a place to analyze and debrief and there's a time and a place not to do that. Right. Um, and, um, and so it's a, it's a lot of strategies like that, but yes, motivation does 
does play a part in it. And typically when people are having motivation problems, they're not, it's usually because they're not performing well. So you, you, you do want to watch for some burnout at that point in time, because when people are starting to right do something over and over and over again, and they're not getting the result that they want, um, you know, there could be some overtraining involved there, you know, you typically start heading down a path of, you know, some um, emotional distress, um, inability to kind of manage the stress, but then you start to see injuries with girls. Sometimes you see some eating issues start to emerge. So it all starts to, you know, it sounds like my senior year of high school. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's fine. I mean, it's funny. Like I, that was something like my coach wanted me to run in, in college and didn't want me to go to UMass. He wanted me to go to like Springfield or, um, or somewhere in Connecticut. And I just really wanted to go to UMass's sport management program. He's like, but you won't be able to run there. And I'm like, I just think I want to sleep. Like yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I'm so tired. Yeah. Um, that hasn't gone away, which is problematic, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean the over you, you know, the burnout, it, it's, it's something that happens in everyday life too. You know, we don't have to talk. It doesn't have to just be athletic burnout. It's, you know, I I'm speaking at um, uh, this conference in a month and the panel that I'm on is called burnout addiction and depression. And oh. yeah, it's for, it's a um, association of corporate counsel. So it's all in-house counsel throughout the, oh, yeah, the country topic. and world. Yeah. And I kind of jumped at the chance because I'm very open about my own depression and anxiety. And, and it's, you know, I'm going through putting together some slides and, I'm going through this, I don't know, um, a reputable website, you know, all the signs of burnout. And I'm like, holy shit, that's my life right now. Yeah. (laughs) And it was like, it was pretty remarkable. It was one of those moments where I'm like, all right, I I understand. I'm pretty self-aware as it is, but no, this is good to know. Which is just, you know, 90% of it. Sure. um, Is being, because then you can, yeah, you can you know, you can intervene. And, um, but it's the, the, with the burnout, it's that it's the helplessness, you know, when people Mm -hmm. start to feel really kind of hopeless about and helpless about kind of their situation, that's, that becomes extremely, you know, difficult. I like Um, to call it spinning out. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's usually my go-to explanation. I'll, I'll text my therapist be like, I'm spinning out right now. Yeah. She's like, okay, all right, come on in. Yeah. Um, and we use it um, in sports like a lot of just kind of even the grounding, kind right. of the simple grounding techniques just to bring people back into the present moment because so much of the anxiety and worry are, is about well, what's going to happen. What are the outcomes? Um, and if I don't get that outcome, then there's all these negative consequences. Right. Um, and, um and so even just those simple techniques, you know, that people can can learn and use and apply just to bring themselves back. And it's true. The mindfulness, you know, the research, you know, it, it's so strong. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And I'm not the best about it. And, you know, I go through moments of like, OK, I've been doing headspace for 35 days in a row. And then it's like, I haven't touched in 112, you know, and I have to get back on it. I mean, you and I were, were chatting before I started recording, you know, we had Monday night football and I decided that 
that was the day that I should get back on my on the horse of waking up early, meditating, and then going for a run when I haven't run in three weeks. Right. And then having the most never-ending day ever. Um, yeah. Sometimes I do things in extremes and it doesn't work out. Work, but. yeah. This episode is brought to you by San Diego State University's Sports MBA program, an accelerated sports-focused MBA in San Diego, California. Students arrive on campus every January for three consecutive semesters, taking classes in spring, summer, and fall, followed by a six-month on-site consultancy with a sports organization for the final term. From start to finish, the entire process takes only 18 months for a fully accredited MBA with a focus on sports business. Each year, SDSU Sports MBA accepts only 20 to 25 students from around the globe for an intensive, rigorous year of building an analytical MBA toolkit while studying the complexities of the sports business industry. The program's location in Southern California gives students access to a wide variety of opportunities, from pro and college sports to apparel and lifestyle companies, not to mention the beaches for the downtime. Applications are now being accepted through November 1st for a January 2019 start. To start an application or learn more, visit sdsu.edu slash sportsmba. That's sdsu.edu slash sportsmba. How did the book deal come about? And tell tell us about the book. Okay, so... Um so the book came about, the book's called Games Girls Play, Understanding and Guiding Young Female Athletes. And it, at that time, there were just, there was, had been this explosion of women competing in sports, you know, and um, there had just been such increases in level of participation. Um, and yet, there really, there wasn't any information out there to kind of address what I was seeing as some kind of unique needs of female athletes and kind of how they were experiencing sport. Um, and how they were using sport and what was motivating to them and all of those things. So I had been working with an athlete who was represented by, uh, it was William Morris Agency mm-hmm. back then. It's now WMA. It's William Morris yeah, Endeavor now. But um, so I, and I was telling the story, I was doing a talk at USA for USA Basketball. And I was saying one of the things is just show up because I totally did not want to go to this meeting. So it was it was a meeting with this the the girls agents and it was in New York and I didn't want it like I just felt like why can't I just talk to these people like I never want to leave home like I was just I don't know what it was like why do I I don't want to go to New York anyway I show up because you got to get on right so I get on the plane I go um, and it turns out that um, what so this athlete uh, was Russian. And so it turns out that one of the agents on her account, on this account, was only on the account because he spoke Russian. He was really in the book division at William Morris. <laughs> so we have the lunch and then, you know, we talk about That's why I said it was like I could have gotten on the phone with them. Right. There wasn't that much to talk. So they give me the, the lowdown. Right. And I'm like, OK. You know, so the guy was like, oh, well, so you kind of that's an interesting career. You know, this we haven't really done a lot with sports psych and what, you know, what else is it? What do you want to do? And I said, oh, well, I kind of would like to write a book. And the guy was like, oh, really? And I, and I didn't know, you know, that he worked in the book division. I wasn't that smart to actually look them up before I went to the meeting. Um, so I said, yeah, you know, and he said, well, what's the idea? And so I told him and he goes, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'd like to represent you. So I said, <laughs> okay, 
let's go. And back then you could, so, and so what's, what is also funny is he said, oh, okay, well, I just finished. My other client is um, this woman who I ended up writing the book with. So I could say Shelly Smith, who works, who's a sports reporter on ESPN. Mm-hmm. And she had just finished a book. She wrote a book about Keyshawn Johnson, who played for the Jets. Right. And so he said, oh, Shelly just finished this book. I think she's looking for another project. You guys might. That would be good because, you know, well, Caroline, you've never written a book before. And I said, that's right. I haven't. That sounds good. I could use some help. Um, so I met Shelly flew down and I met with her and we're like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's let's write a book. Um, <laughs> so we wrote the you know, I think you have to write the first three chapters or whatever, sat down. And then at that time, you could you know, you, you went around, you could still get an advance if you were not a you know, if you were an unknown person, yeah. they actually still gave you an advance back then. So they shopped the book around. We met. I flew to New York and I forget there were like seven or eight houses because even that like there aren't even that many anymore you know but back then there were a bunch of different publishers and it was another great like cool experience you know I had no idea what I was doing that you know the agent had like double booking some of the meetings I was in by myself um I had no you know they show up with like one I can't remember who that was but one how I swear they came with like five people it was like their whole marketing department and they were they said well how how are you going to sell the book like which ones of your clients are going to speak on television I thought oh god I'm just like sitting there going Caroline say think of something like how do you answer you know because you can't even tell people who your clients are right so I didn't have permission right so it's like uh uh you know so I kind of wung it. But anyway, we ended up getting a book deal, um, which was great. And um, yeah, and wrote the book. So there you go. Um, That's so so show up for the meeting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's huge. You know, half of it is showing up and and making those connections. And um, throughout your career, you that's something that you seem to keep doing. I mean, when I was doing research on you, you're like involved in like a hundred things. Yeah, I do um, like to do a lot of different things. Like, and they're, they're, they all connect somehow, but also mm-hmm. are very different, which I love. So you've got Kindness Counts Foundation. Oh, yeah. That's not, yeah, that was, so I served on some, I got asked to serve on like some boards and things. And so that's always fun. Um, the Kindness Counts uh, Foundation did a really cool, they were really about um, educating parents and they did, it was during kind of the big self-esteem movement. Yeah. And so they did a really, really nice um, uh, little booklet um, that was distributed um, all through, it was mostly in New Jersey, I think, but it was distributed through all the schools. And so it was a really great, you know, how to use sport to build self-esteem in youth. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, it was fun. That was a fun organization. Center for Sports Parenting. Yeah, I don't. The Center for Sports Parenting used to do a lot of um, they had a big online presence um, with a lot of Q&A. So I did a ton of Q&A. People would write their questions in and then we'd give them, you know, the elevator answer the elevator speech answer which is great i mean i know that i've talked to some people who are involved with um positive positive coaching alliance and that's a lot of what they do this was pre-positive coaching alliance yeah yeah um women's sports foundation of course i love them um the american ballet theater advisory board 
Yeah, so they, American Ballet Theater did a really cool, um, they put me on their advisory board, their medical advisory board, and they did, um, ABT decided to certify, have a certification process for their ballet instructors. And actually any, anybody can become any, you don't, you don't have to be, you know, you can become an ABT kind of certified instructor or dance studio. And so we wrote a whole curriculum and it covers everything that from motivation to training environments, to eating disorders, to the, you know, the triad, um, nutrition, physiology, it's really was quite comprehensive. And I just love that idea of a certification. So when parents put their kids into a studio, they know that, the instructors had taken some kind of formal training on some of these issues that um, that y- you either wanted to avoid right. <laughs> or know how to navigate. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's something that, you know, if you're looking at like Olympic movement type of sports as well, that would be so good for some yeah. of the, the smaller, more local clubs. And, um, and I know that's one of the things that Uh, on many topics is being talked about. Um, And then one of the coolest things that you did, and uh, tell me if you're still working with them, is you worked with the American Girl Company. Yeah. So actually, I just finished. I love American Girl. American Girl is such a great company. It's so they're so fun to work with. And, you know, they're owned by Mattel. So they're owned by a huge company, but they're they still operate very much like their, um, their small organization right. as a small organization. So it's super cool. And yeah, so we just early on, um, I helped them do a book. Um, they had their first book that came out with sport was called good sports. And then we did an update to good sports, which was called sports, sports secrets and spirit stuff. And then they did an update again from, uh, good sports and sports, secrets and spirits up to their, they have that whole smart girls guides. Okay. They have all like smart girl guides to taking care of your body and smart girl guides to best friends. And they're all these smart girl guides, like how to do stuff. Is this with like Um, the Amy Poehler company too? Like the, she does a lot of smart girl girl guides. I don't know. Or something. That's interesting. It may be, I don't know. Um, but it's, they have a whole series and this is kind of their sport and fitness one. And so it was all about like, they have a book, like the, the care and keeping of you. They have all these different books for these, you know, like eight to 12 year old girls. And, um, and Therese Maring is the, um, their writer there. And she and I just like hit it off and love working together. She's just a blast and she's so good at what she does. And, um, and we have so much fun and then they're just cool. Like they send you, you know, oh, here's the, you know, that they hire the illustrator and they send you the art and, you know, you get to give, you know, well, if that's a field hockey stick, it looks like a hockey stick. <laughs> like a hockey stick <laughs> is a lot longer than a field hockey stick. So you got to correct that. Um, and they're, but they're, they just love, um, to empower girls. So all the messages and, and so over time I've learned, um, like the first book, it was like a Q and a that I had to do and they keep sending it back saying, but it's gotta be in the American girl voice. And I, right. thought, well, I don't, I don't know what that voice is. I want to get that voice. How do I get it? But over time, you know, you get it, you know, and you can, um, you can hear it and you can understand it. And, um, they're just super fun to work with. And when the, uh, sports secret and 
not sports secret and spear stuff. You know what I did? I forgot about that. They had the Mia doll, which was a, their girl of the year doll was a, she, her message was all about healthy competition. She was a figure skater. She was from a hockey family and she chose to figure skate and her <laughs> message. The book was all about healthy. So we went in, they hired me and, um, I was kind of like the spokesperson for the doll, I guess she could say. And we went in and did workshops at their flagship stores. So all the girls came in and they did, we did, you know, like a little mental skills workshop, like pulling from the, um, from the, uh, concepts in the book. Yeah. And then, you know, then you go to lunch with your doll and <laughs> so <laughs> and cute and they go to lunch and they buy a lot of stuff. And, right. and then, you know, we did like a Q and a, it was really fun. I love that. I love working with that. That is really cool. Um, do you have yeah. any new projects on the horizon or are we just no, because no, just because the sports um, I'll see. I'm hoping that we'll do some more stuff together. But the smart girl guidebook, we just finished that that just came out. Um, so I'll see kind of what's on the horizon next. Yeah. And um, how do you know, people, you know, get in touch with you if they were like, hey, I have a daughter who can't stop crying yeah. um, when she goes to figure skating class. Um, you know, like, how do how do people find you? Yeah, so they can go. I the drsilby.com is probably the best place. And then that there's a little form on the website that they can just fill out. And I'm very good about responding. You are very good at responding, even to random people who are like, hey, come on my podcast. You've never heard of me, um, <laughs> which I love. Although disorganized with my time. I'm working on it. It's fine. I'm We're good. On it. We're yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and and so right now you're, you know, doing your day, your, you know, um, private practice with um, athletes. And are there other things that you're working on? Um, well, we I just finished. I do. It's funny because I as I said, I wrote this book not knowing how to write, but I ended up realizing that I really like to write. So I just finished a, another chapter in a book, a figure skating, uh, sports science of figure skating. So just finished that up. So I'll see kind of what I usually like to do one writing project a year. So I'll kind of see what that next piece is. Um, I'm doing some um, some fun work with some of the college teams around here locally where I live in the DC area. And then I've been working with, um, DC United with their development Academy, which has been really fun. Oh, that's um, awesome. Got a, a bunch of, yeah, really talented kids, um, coming through their program. So just, you know, just the kind of the same old stuff I'm trying to like for me now in my career, it's kind of, like you said, I, I like to do a lot of different things. And so I have to try to figure out how to juggle it all with, I've got, a, you know, two girls, 16 and 12. So, um, and one of them is an athlete on two different, you know, where she drives all over the place. So <laughs> I'm having to try to like figure that out and manage my own stress. So I need to go hire a sports psychologist for myself. I was, just, <laughs> I was just thinking how that must be so interesting because I am sure oh your gosh. daughter is like, mom, I'm not one of your clients. Exactly. Just let me be. <laughs> I, I always say it's like I feel like I, I get a performance minute. I, I get 45 minutes to 50 minutes with a client. Right. And with my own kids, it's like literally 
a minute. And if I don't perform and get it out in a minute, I'm done. Like they're done. <laughs> it's actually really <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure, but it's like some really good training, right? So yeah, you can right, learn exactly. to like distill down to the most important topic, <laughs> right. you know, things. Um, right. Are you on social media? I'm, I kind of am, but not in a professional very, sense. Uh, yeah, I'm not very good about being at when stuff comes up. I'll, rem, I'll sometimes remember to post, but it's <laughs> uh, it's it's tough. I'm on Twitter and um, yeah, but it's not good. I, I need to. And I think I have a, I, I, I know I have a Facebook account as well. Although who goes nobody goes on Facebook anymore. I don't know. So, um, yeah. So I am not uh, I am not. I, I would say I'm not very socially. So the website, active. the website is where so the we website go. People. Is a good place. Twitter. Yeah. You can get me once every once in a while. I, I mean, get on there right now. Um, Twitter is such a, I mean, everybody should follow the podcast, Twitter, obviously and yes. mine, but it, yes. otherwise it's like a cesspool. So, uh, is it? it's just, so what should I be on? I should be on what? Like Instagram, oh, I guess. I, I don't know what should you should I be, be on. Uh, I can't give advice on that. <laughs> No, Twitter. I think Twitter it. is good. It's just there's so much noise right now, too. Like you yeah. have to be really focused or you can just be like I am and throw out all your thoughts on there and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to explain Twitter to people now because I got on it right when it started and it's yeah. it's evolved so much. And so who I am on Twitter is just very much who I am in real life. Mm-hmm. Um which is good and can be bad. Right. <laughs> you know, it's the, I, as I am learning how to be uh, less reactionary mm. in real life, I am mm-hmm. also learning how to be less reactionary on the Twitterverse. And so Got it. it's, which one gets you more jazz? Is there one that gets you more jazz? Like, are you more likely to be in person or on when you read something on Twitter, is it like if you if somebody said the same thing in person versus on Twitter, would one get you more? Um, I am likely to have an actual reaction on Twitter, although it's gotten a lot better, but I am more likely to internalize it if it's in person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is I mean, there are there are a lot of layers. Um, (laughs) And Another question that I like to ask, and we usually close out after this, is what do you do by way of self-care? Oh, well, I'm definitely trying to do my 12 minutes a day of my mindfulness, of my headspace. Um, So that's something. But I exercise. I mean, for me, that's, you know, is my time where I just let myself... um, not think, you know, just let my brain kind of just regroup and, um, and kind of take care of myself. And I, I, I do take time with my family, um, my kids, my dog, um, my (laughs) husband, (laughs) it's really important for family time, but it's, it's a great question because it's hard, you know, it's hard when you have, you know, a career and young kids and it's a lot of juggling and, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't, it's a timely question that you're asking me. Cause I don't, I don't want my life to not be fun. You right. know what I mean? It's like everything can't be a checklist of getting stuff done, right? right? You have to enjoy it. And so I think part of it is what you were saying earlier too. It's just, sometimes it's that recognition of, okay, wait, 
it's been a month of me just kind of being go, 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 stop, you know? And so that was kind of where I was today, just a little bit of reflection, like, okay, I got to go have some fun. Yeah, Um, for sure. I think that's, that is so important. And, you know, a good reminder to myself too, um, because I think a lot of times we'll wait until our body makes us yeah, you know, slow down. Right. Yeah, so it's right. the last couple, the last week in particular, it's been like, I, I can feel my body just about to like, you know, shut down, you know, yeah. it's about to get sick or, or whatever, because I can, because they brought yeah. someone else into my department. So now there are two of us as opposed to just one, like there had been for mm-hmm. seven months. So now it's not just all on me. Right. And yeah, I was in bed, I think on Friday by like eight thirty, <laughs> you know, and like slept for, I'm not even kidding. 11 hours. I know. Sometimes it feels so good. Yeah. And just knowing that that's what you need is so important. Um, Yep. So, um, but also the fun aspect, and I'm glad that you said that because um, that's something that I, I need a reminder of at times, you know, that it just like, can't all be work. And this is fun for me. These, these conversations are, yeah. are really fun for me. Right. And I like to connect with people, but it, there's also an aspect of like, I'm in front of a computer and I, you know, we're setting yeah. up a time and da, 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 da. And I don't know. I think I need to do some free range. Fun, yeah, exactly. You know? And it was on your calendar. So now right. it's checked off your calendar. As right. opposed to, yes. Just the freedom of, I just want to go have fun, you know, and hang out. It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't have to do, you know, sometimes it's not even doing anything. It's just, enjoying, right. you know, enjoying what you have and, um, and being kind of present in that moment. So I almost feel um, like somebody needs to pluck me up and like, just drop me somewhere. That's fun. And be like, okay, have, yeah, have a day. Go have fun, you right? know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just, somebody do that. like something random, you know, <laughs> yeah. somebody's going to kidnap me now and like, right. you know, drop me off at like a casino or something, which yeah. I can't go to a casino. So nobody do that. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't work well when you work in pro sports. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I'm trying to like get myself out of the, how many things do I have to do? How much, you know? So thank you for that reminder. It's definitely needed. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think, you know, I've been wanting to bring someone on who does do the type of work that you do and, um, you know, has a different, um, career path than I think a lot of people think about. And that's kind of the point of the pod. Yeah. Well, it's so nice. And, um, it just, it may, you know, it makes me feel good that people would even, you know, want to hear what I did. I just, I love what I do, but the fact that other people might want to hear about what I do is like, so, That'll give me a week of energy. So that's great. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Um, well, again, thank you very much. You're so welcome. It's so good to talk to you, Bobby Sue. Big thank you to Dr. Sylvie for being on this week's podcast. You all know how important I think mental health is and the fact that elite athletes have this whole other aspect to their w- mental well-being that they need to care for is just so fascinating to me. Um, and that integrated, integrate, integrated, integrative medicine. I can't even say it right. Y'all it's fine. Keep it in. Um, that whole idea of the team of doctors to help, um, is something that I, I 
you know, always kind of watching. Um, I see it with our athletes where I work now, but I also, you know, in my own life have seen it work with some other people in my life. And it's, it's just something that's really interesting to me. All right, y'all, you have homework. It is to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in. You can also catch us on RadioInfluence.com and at LTPFPod.com. Follow us on social. Remember, we're trying to get to 500 Instagram followers. That's at LTPFPod. And then we're also at LTPFPod on Twitter and Facebook. And then email us at LTPFPod at gmail.com. We love, love, love hearing from you. And don't forget to tell us what you think we should do to celebrate 50 episodes and your thoughts on swag. I hope you all have a great week. This is a Jim Fannin Show Quick Fix on Radio Influence. This show's about going on a mental diet. It's about no. It's about saying no to gossip. And a lot of people gossip and there's hearsay and there's rumors. And, you know, as, as we understand, it can increase uh, 20, 22, 25 times faster than uh, something really positive. Uh, so it can really fly through an office, uh, through a community, uh, through a school. And uh, less is more. And, and I think not participating in gossip rumors, hearsay, passing it on, it's going to serve you well. And is this being selfish? Everybody wants to talk about what's in the news and and kind of regurgitate it. Everybody puts their little spin on it, their stamp of what they think. Politics, religion's been in the paper. Obviously, politics is rampant, uh, especially this time of the year with the midterms coming up. No, I'm not going there. And control what you can control. Um, that really is the key. The Jim Fannin Show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.